It's the 12th of September, 2015, and this is episode 246. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Andreas, Stephanie, and special guest Nick Sabo, who is, among other things, the creator of the smart contracts concept as we know it today, and a very influential figure in cryptography, generally speaking. Nick, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. So before we get into the kind of more modern topics, I was really interested in your earlier work with Bitgold. Um, Can you just briefly uh, go over what the point was, what worked about it, what parts you liked, and what parts didn't work at the time? Yeah, okay, so BitGold and uh, Wade B Money comes out of conversations that we had on a mailing list I had called LibTech. Essentially, for BitGold, um, it's based on Byzantine Agreement, which is a computer science protocol that basically involves, ideally involves everybody broadcasting to everybody else. And so you keep a common ledger, or as I viewed it then, a common property title of who owns what. And so the idea of BitGold is that you, you have a conserved value, and that value is conserved by by ledger, but also by the initial cost of creation. So there were several uh, proof-of-work concepts out there at the time, but Adabax Hashcash was the one cypherpunks were most familiar with as a proof-of-work to maintain the scarcity and uh, also ongoing conserved property titles. So a generalization of the double spending problem is the double transfer problem. You can't transfer your property asset registry or property titles database to more than one person. So the Byzantine um, agreement along with the cryptographic hash chain solved that problem. When you say Byzantine agreement, that's for people who aren't familiar with the idea. That's It's kind of an interesting concept. It's named after the Byzantine generals problem where there's you know, a war going on and uh, a general wants to get a message to the other side, to his troops on the other side of a city or something that it's time to attack. But how does he know that that message was received without them sending another message back? It's basically how do you communicate in an unreliable environment? And this, the solution to that is this distributed kind of uh, ledger, right? Right, correct. So your, your adversaries called Byzantine adversaries can falsify messages and can uh, block or delay messages. And the question is, how reliable can your communications be when you're communicating with some fraction of parties that can do that? So why aren't we using BitGold today? What was the part about it that didn't work at the time? So, so it was just a design. It wasn't software, so that, that kind of makes a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> it helps if, it, if it's actually implemented. And it was just a very fringe, you know, way out there idea at the time. I don't think... You know, there are a few people on the LibTech list and maybe two or three other cypherpunks even considering it plausible that you would have a private decentralized currency that wasn't dependent on some physical thing like, you know, actual gold, for example. So what changed over the next 10 years that made it so that something like Bitcoin made sense where something like Bitgold had been very, very theoretical at that point? Is it just that Satoshi did it? Well, so Satoshi did a couple things. First of all, he figured out Byzantine Agreement has a problem which we didn't recognize at the time called a Sybil attack problem. And that is, it's actually pretty difficult in the internet to securely count the nodes you're talking to and, and distinguish between them. And Satoshi solved that by integrating the proof of work into the security. So that was a breakthrough he made. And also, of course, it's implementing the software. 
the timing of his implementation of the software was pretty good too, and then he did it during a financial crisis, so that piqued a lot of people's interests. People were looking for alternatives at that time that really hadn't been before. Did you engage in conversations with Satoshi uh, on the mailing list? And, you know, like, what were your impressions at that time? It was interesting. I wasn't, since I had, you know, it wasn't, I guess, as novel to me as, as it was to other people at the time. So I didn't take as big an interest in it initially as uh, some other people did. Nick, you're probably uh, best known in this space as someone who coined the term smart contract and certainly is the most influential proponent of smart contracts and has written extensively on both uh, how to implement smart contracts uh, as well as the implications they might have in our world. Do you think that smart contracts are something that we can do or mostly do with the primitives we have in Bitcoin? Or do we need a more expressive script language like Ethereum to do smart contracts the way you envision them? Yeah, so there's some simple smart money um, applications like multi-sig and a variety of others that you can do with Bitcoin. If you want to have a flexible general purpose programming environment like programmers have been used to since the 1950s at least, then you're going to want to use Ethereum because it's got a Turing complete language and a large state. I sometimes make the comparison of a, a pocket calculator versus a general purpose computer. And uh, do you see the two projects as uh, largely synergistic? Uh, would you envision a, a time when you're, for example, using a combination of uh, Bitcoin uh, contracts, Bitcoin currency, Ethereum contracts, and Ether in, in commercial interactions? Sure, yeah, definitely. Especially if side chains can be made to work. I mean, that's a, it's a, I think there's some open questions about how long you can store collateral on one blockchain with the cryptocurrency of another using side chains. But if that problem can be solved, then it would definitely be great to have them both interacting. Well, you mentioned uh, side chains. What are other projects that are really exciting to you in, in this space, in smart contracts specifically and, and more broadly in the cryptocurrency space? Kind of the two things, I guess, in prelude to answering that question that are unique about Bitcoin are uh, the independence from financial institutions and its, its seamless global nature. And those are both very dependent on its security. So given that those are the two, two big things that distinguish it from, say, um, Visa or some other PayPal or some other payment system, I would say the two, two big categories that are really interesting, because it's its own currency independently, um, Developing countries where the, the financial system and the currency and the capital controls are often pretty flaky, and cross-border applications. So everything from remittances to the way you know stock dividends and bond coupons are paid across borders. There's a whole raft of cross-border applications that are potentially quite valuable. And I guess I, I could point to some three companies or kinds of applications that interest me. So one of them one of the things that interests me is change integrating a social network with money. Change ship is pretty good at. Because when you market Bitcoin, you don't want to market to individuals because every individual is going to come and tell you, you know, the people I do business with, the people I know, they don't use Bitcoin. And so you need to market to groups in a really focused manner. One of the best ways to do that on the internet these days is, is through social networks. So that's kind of like what I, I like about change tip. 
Premium, I like um, just because for the worry-minimized commerce, there's a potential for Bitcoin to reduce the number of forms you have to fill out compared to, say, PayPal and others. Oh, I don't go in for all this micropayment stuff and we're going to pay a cent for a web page and that kind of thing. If you keep within the parameters of, say, charging 10 cents a minute for video streaming, then that's a, that can be a pretty powerful application for Bitcoin. And then the other thing I like are the cross-border and the local exchanges. So, like, local Bitcoins in Abra, I think, is encouraging local exchanges is important. On ChangeTip, um, ChangeTip is a, is a centralized off-blockchain tipping ecosystem application. Does the fact that it's off-blockchain or centralized matter? And I mean, really, it uses the, kind of like the casino model, right? Where you put your tokens in, and then once they're in, then they can you know, trade for free inside. And when you're ready to leave the system, then you trade your casino tokens in, and you get real money back. So, I mean, like, what sure, do you think well- types of the, that type of system? Okay, so backing up to uh, Bitcold, that, that's pretty much what I envision for Bitcold as a two-tier architecture. So the consensus, the Byzantine consensus, and also um, the Nakamoto version of that, it doesn't scale very well in terms of security. And so what I envision for, for Bitgold is a two-tier architecture, that you have Bitgold as your, as your settlement layer for large value transaction. And then... I was going to use Xiaomi and Digital Cash, which would give you privacy and efficient transactions at a retail level. This is just how these systems kind of naturally have to work. You see the blockchain as being a settlement layer, or at least in the case of these examples, we're talking about a settlement layer, and that you kind of necessarily need these layers on top that don't use the blockchain and so don't have that decentralization, but they also don't have the cost. Right. So yeah, so Xiaomi and Digital Cash is based on a trusted third party. Of course, that's one of the reasons it failed. Something like a change tip or a Mt. Gox or something, you don't want to have a large amount of value flowing through somebody who doesn't have the experience of a visa or a bank. So banks and visa and stuff, they know how to do trusted third parties. People in the Bitcoin community tend not to know how to do trusted third parties. And sort of the secret of a visa or a bank is they're not really a trusted third party. They're a bunch of accountants and auditors, and if they fail, lawyers... And the accountants and auditors are checking each other's work. What a blockchain gives you is that that's automated. So it's a bunch of, in a blockchain, it's a bunch of computers checking each other's work. And so as long as you're maintaining that automated security, you have a huge efficiency advantage over doing it manually, which is what Visa and uh, a bank do. But if you're going to do a trusted third party and you're going to create, start putting a lot of value through that, then all of a sudden you're going to have that manual army you're going to need again. Or you're going to end up like Mt. Gox. That's, those are your two alternatives when you, well, so, when you so, try to do a trusted third party. So there's platform risk, which is that, uh, which is like uh, you know Mt. Gox or Change Tip, and then there's currency risk, which in the case of Chami and Cash would be whoever you know the uh, that backing party is that trusted third party is, and in the case of Bitcoin is the blockchain. So adding the blockchain effectively eliminates at least that currency layer of risk. Yeah. So what so what I envisioned for the Chami and Cash is that you would have a an auditable bank, as we called it. And at any time, you could trade in your, your bank notes, your digital cash, for actual bit gold. And you can envision doing this in the Bitcoin space, too. I think what Lightning and some of the other proposals is probably a little better than this, in that you have a smart contract, a Bitcoin script. If there's a dispute arises, you can kind of retroactively run it on the Bitcoin blockchain. Don't require a full trusted third party, but are kind of more in a trust but verify and back up on the real blockchain if it didn't work kind of deal. 
Nick, you had a really early view in Bitcoin and you said that you didn't find it as surprising. Obviously, it had many similarities to other things that were being discussed at the time. And um, it used many of the familiar algorithms that, that you had worked with previously. But since that time, since Bitcoin was launched, what things have uh, surprised you about how this ecosystem has developed? How are things in any way different from what you might have anticipated at the time? So there's nothing like a working software to make it concrete for people um, to take a what sounds like a fringe idea and actually make it concrete. Because it's not just an idea you're hearing, it's software you're using. Also a financial crisis to make people you know, look for alternative things. So certainly the, the amount of interest and heck even mania that, that Bitcoin <laughs> that came about with Bitcoin is it was certainly pretty surprising, but I, I think those two factors would be the main explanation for that. Uh, do you have any predictions of where all of this is going, or just along for the rides, just like the rest of us? So yeah, I mean, hopefully it's the kind of fad is going to be replaced with more concrete uses, so things like remittances and other cross-border stuff. And I noticed you kept using the word fringe to uh, refer to Bitcoin uh, a couple of times, and then you just said fad just now. Do you still think of Bitcoin as something that's outside of the mainstream? And do you think it'll ever get into the mainstream? Well, it's certainly a lot more mainstream. No, I was referring to the pre-Bitcoin ideas and designs and stuff. Now, there's certainly a lot of people who still view Bitcoin that way. You know, like all these bankers who say, oh, it's, you know, it's the blockchain, not Bitcoin that we're interested in. So they're, they're, it's certainly the case that, you know, having an independent currency that's not officially issued by a government. It's still not a mainstream idea, I don't think, in, in the financial community. But it's certainly a lot closer to that than it was before Satoshi came along. So, What are the most uh, interesting smart contracts applications in your mind? You talked about remittances and cross-border transactions for Bitcoin, but what about smart contracts? Where do you see the most interesting applications? So when I was first designing blockchains back in 1998, they were designed to register assets, or as I called them, uh, secure property titles, and of which BitGold w- was an example of a kind of property. That's very similar to the colored coins idea right now, taking the idea of Bitcoin and generalizing it to label other assets. However, that's that's kind of a secure label, which you can do some interesting things with, and I know Chain and NASDAQ and, and so forth and Overstock are doing some interesting things with that. But there's actually a lot more general things you can do if, if you go on Ethereum, and so that's kind of what I'm working, projects I'm working on now are uh, generalizing that concept and making a more trust-minimized way to uh, move cash flow across the blockchain. And because the, the secure label, it, it can track ownership really well, but it doesn't actually move the cash flows for you in a trust-minimized way. So the, that's kind of the next generation of interesting application that I'm working on. And then one of the low-hanging fruits, I think, is... People talk about distributed autonomous organizations, but they often usually have a, a kind of AI futuristic bent on that. There's actually a very simple version of that, which Pamela Morgan has worked on, is multi-sig. In other words, having signature authority on the blockchain, having your money on the blockchain, and then the officers of your corporation or however you want to organize your, your organization have certain spending authorities. So I think that's a good low-hanging fruit. So a governance mechanism for distributed autonomous organizations. Right. 
I would not use that grandiose phrase because your organization's not on the blockchain. Your, your organization's treasury is on the blockchain. And so it's certainly not, not the organization itself. It's on mm-hmm. the blockchain. I appreciate you pointing that out because the way people talk about it, they do make it sort of sound like, oh, yeah, everything's the whole company is not just on the blockchain. Yeah, I mean, that, that latter view of it is, is a much more futuristic AI-based kind of thing that is certainly not low-hanging fruit. Uh, one of the uh, sentences that quickly follows the idea of a DAO that's entirely in the blockchain is that it floats above all jurisdiction. It is outside the law, uh, which, is, which is an interesting concept. I think it's um, mostly fiction, but jurisdiction is a really sticky problem with smart contracts and how you take smart contracts and tie them or anchor them into um, real-world interactions and adjudication of legal dispute resolution. Uh, what, what are your opinions on using jurisdiction and how does that issue play with smart contracts? So the main idea of smart contracts itself is that the performance, the collateral, those kinds of things, and in particular financial performances, the low-hanging fruit, is enforced on the blockchain. So the kind of pure smart contract is not dependent at all on a legal jurisdiction. Now, that said, it's only a small subset, you know, the financial performance that typically you can do on the blockchain of any random contract you'd come across in real life. One thing you can do is you can just stick to the the financial performance. There's some subset of relationships you can do. They just involve financial performance. And you can do those on a blockchain at a very low cost, seamlessly cross-border, as with Bitcoin. You don't necessarily have to invoke a legal jurisdiction. One way you can think about this is that if possession, if your local law, possession is 90% of the law, possession is nine-tenths of the law is the old phrase, then in a cross-border transaction, the smart contract control of what's happening is is 99% or more of the law. In cross-border business right now, if there's a dispute, you know, unless you're a large corporation or have, for whatever reason, have a large legal budget, it's going to get very expensive very quickly to use a traditional legal dispute mechanism. So the cost factor is that your self-enforcing smart contract and the collateral you put on the blockchain is going to be much, much cheaper than cross-border dispute resolution. And it could be customizable, potentially. You know, you could kind of choose different systems. Parties could agree to sort of be bound by different sets of terms for their contract, and they could pick, whereas with jurisdictions, you don't really have that choice. Sure. There is a thing in international contracts called choice of law, where you have some abilities to choose your jurisdiction. And you could certainly mm-hmm. use that to choose, you know, people choose, for, for example, Bermuda for insurance contracts because Bermuda is a very attractive jurisdiction for insurance companies. They have a lot of experts in Bermuda on insurance contracts and insurance business. So, yeah, I envision quite a bit more of that, people specializing jurisdictions, specializing in certain kinds of businesses. The other interesting thing you can do with multi-sig is that custody no longer has to be in one particular place. You can imagine a Bitcoin or an asset on a blockchain custodied under multi-sig. Part of it is in Singapore, part of it's in Hong Kong, part of it's in Switzerland. And so the effect of jurisdiction, the people who can actually take action and reverse the smart contract are going to be in these N jurisdictions out of which some M can actually uh, have the power to reverse the smart contract. So the other way you can think about a smart contract in relation to traditional law is that 
It's a set of default rules, and it changes the burden of lawsuit. So if you think about a car repossession, the normal burden of lawsuit, if, if the owner who hasn't paid his auto bills for the loan, if there's no repossession, then the creditor has to go sue the owner and try to get the car back or the, try to get the loan paid. And so that's the burden of, of lawsuit is on the creditor. Repossession changes that. You just go out and get the car, and all of a sudden the debtor has to sue. So that's the kind of thing that happens. Smart contracts have that kind of relationship versus um, regular law, and that it, it shifts the burden of lawsuit, which in a cross-border case is a really, really heavy and often prohibitive burden. Jumping back a little bit, um, when you're talking about assets on the blockchain, the projects that you mentioned are exploring mainly tokenized versions of financial assets. I was wondering what kinds of non-financial things make sense for you in the asset space? And are you talking about things that would indeed still be built on these Bitcoin layers, or do you think that things that don't fall into the financial category make more sense on other blockchains? So, I mean, there's all sorts of place spaces that could be explored. I certainly haven't explored most of them. Um, one, one of the other things besides finance, pure finance in terms of just money and money-based things that interest me are collateral and smart property. So the auto repo auto example that I, I just gave, for example, it's a computer protocol between the car, which is smart property, so it has a computer running on it with a particular security, needed security devices, and the creditor's computer and debtor's computer. If the misses a payment, then that allows the creditor to shut off the ability to start the car and then allows them to locate the car and repossess it. And there are, in fact, since the mid-1990s, some crude versions that have been developed where they do that. And that allows loans to be made to low interest and high credit risk that wouldn't have been made otherwise. And then the other part of the question was, um, when it comes to things that aren't financial contracts or things that aren't high value necessarily, perhaps, um, uh, is Bitcoin the one blockchain that everything, as far as smart assets and, and, and you know all of these different types of layers that will be built on top, should they all be going into Bitcoin because that then adds to the greater security of the one chain? Or is it better at a certain point to kind of start to grow horizontally and have different purpose-specific chains where Bitcoin kind of acts as the money layer that enables it all? Bitcoin just does not have the flexible, large-state programming language you really want to have for smart contracts. So it's useful for, you know, the kind of smart money things that are associated with payments that make payments a little fancier, but it's not really a good uh, smart contracts environment. So, so the answer is yes, you want, you hopefully can have Bitcoin at the center using side chains, and then you're going to have a lot of other chains doing smart contracts and various other things. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is another dense one. So let's take a few minutes to enjoy another song from my favorite original instrumentalist, General Fuzz. You can find all his free and open source music at generalfuzz.net. But this time we're listening to In Closing off his 2014 album, Odyssey. I'll be back in a moment with the magic word for episode 246. Enjoy.
Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by Tokenly. Limitless tokens for a tokenless world. Today's magic word is smart. That's S-M-A-R-T. Smart. You've got until the 19th of September to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Let's rejoin the conversation now. When you talk about smart contracts going beyond the smart money aspects and into touching real-world tangible stuff, asset ownership and title, things like that, as well as various other real-world events, very often we hear about oracles acting as validators of external information to a chain. Do you think that smart contracts in the long run require trusted nodes to act as oracles or some kind of decentralized oracle infrastructure in order to work? So some of them do. If you want to have conditions that are based on, on things like price quotes, birth, deaths, various you know, legally relevant things that happen in the world, you need to have authoritative sources for that. Kind of the good news is that there are authoritative sources for that. We don't have to reinvent the world from scratch. So I know there are people in the Bitcoin and Ethereum communities that kind of go out with mathematically clever distributed oracles and stuff. Really what you want to do is tie into the real world. So for example, um, birth. We have an authoritative source for birth. It's the birth certificate. It's signed by a parent and it's signed by the doctor. So those are the experts on whether a birth happened and when it happened and so forth. And price quotes. We have, we have authoritative sources for price quotes. We have authoritative sources for benchmark prices. That kind of thing is highly evolved. It's been going on for hundreds of years in the financial community. So when you start saying trusted party, again, there's no one trusted party. These things are highly evolved to evolve, involve multiple people. They involve the experts involved that are actually observing that. So in the case of a birth certificate, your experts are the parents and the uh, doctor who, who gave birth, and those are the ones that signed the birth certificate. How does that so, make its way onto the internet, though, is, is, I think, the question. So you do need to do some work to take that authoritative, go as far back as you can, for example, maybe get a digital signature from the doctor, for example. You want to go as far back as you can, scanning the birth certificate and then hashing that. Off the blockchain, you have the birth certificate. On the blockchain, you have the hash, and you can verify the birth certificate. From that, so I'm I'm oversimplifying, but what you're going to do is you're going to take the current source of authority and try to put it on the blockchain, rather than trying to reinvent uh, things from scratch. So to continue the oversimplification, so in the future, you know, where smart contracts are the norm, one might expect the uh, there to be one or multiple APIs that you could just plug into in order to get uh, these different opinions or different versions of uh, the birth certificate record as it's coming out, you know, different competing solutions, and then vet them against each other to determine what the real uh, information might be, even if none of them are trusted. Yeah, I don't know that competition really plays a role in it. The, the real thing is, do you have a secure path from the authorities, the doctor and the parents in the case of the birth, to the blockchain? That's what you're concerned about. Whether that's done through competition or through this or that, your, your real interest is, is that path secure or not? Reputation system or market competition or something is a replacement for that security. It may help communicate that security to people who don't understand the security, but it doesn't, it's a replacement for the security. And it's not a replacement for the authorities either. 
So, I mean, I'd, I'd like to hear a little more about that. What do you, what would it look like, for instance, with a case of birth certificates? Like, what would the path from the parents and the doctor to the blockchain actually look like? So, I mean, a really simple one you can imagine. I don't, I don't know if this is the best way to do it or if it's completely secure, but is you can just a paper birth certificate, the one that they issue today, and hash it and put it on the blockchain. And that has a lot of problems and that you really can you really verify the the signatures for example so you can starting from that simple way to do it you can imagine ways to elaborate it if you have securely identified through certificate authorities or some other method the doctor and the parents then you can go back a step and say hey sign this digital version of a birth certificate and that that might end up being more reliable more secure so the trustless part doesn't really matter. It just has to be accurate. And once you have accuracy, then kind of it all falls away. But how you get to accuracy, because I mean, that, that is kind of a thing, you know, about all of this stuff is that if it can be done in a trustless way, it seems like that has a lot of advantages because over time you, you can basically stop checking, right? Um, if, if you're not... Sure. Well, first yeah. of all, there's, there's no such thing as trustless. So even the blockchain itself, it's based on up to 51% or probably less than that given the real world implementations, but um, it's based on you're trusting 51% of, at least 51% of the mining power. So that's not trustless. That's like half trust. (laughs) And it's the most secure you can get. The, the, the others are even, the other ways of doing things are even less secure than that. So um, there's another thing is, is fully trustless. I don't know how that term became popular, but (laughs) it's, it's, it's a very misleading term. I like to use the word trust minimizing. There's better ways to do things. So, you know, eventually you can imagine, unfortunately, the easiest way to imagine a, in a birth certificate, you know, get more doctors in the room witnessing the birth or something. I don't, I don't know that the added expense of having more observers is, is worth the added trust minimization. And the fact that we don't do it that way already when we could do it that way suggests that it's not. But yes, you can imagine various institutions evolving in a more trust minimized way. But unless you can do that in an automated fashion like the blockchain, then it's probably going to be more cost than it's worth. So the real benefit there would be having this record that was distributed, that the barriers to accessing it would be lower because, you know, when you want a copy of your birth certificate, you got to go to the town hall where you're the town where you're born or something. And it's pretty uh, difficult to get a copy or costly in some cases because they'll charge you money. But you're saying that the barriers to accessing it would be lower? Yes, and also that you could then use it in smart contracts. Now, all of a sudden, you have authoritative events on the blockchain, and that makes your smart contracts much richer than pure financial contracts. Right. So then you can say, well, you know, when, yeah, right, exactly. So then you can tie statistics to it and other decisions within a contract. This sounds like it provides a more practical way for governments to interact with blockchain technologies rather than asking governments to replace the national currency or to replace the way they do elections or to replace the way that land registries are recorded in some countries, rather to look for ways to publish existing information that is considered authoritative where, where governments do store that information like birth and death registries and things like that, and instead publish it in a form that's more easily consumable by the blockchain, which kind of sounds like the initial way that governments adopted the internet, really, which was to publish government-related information. Sure, yeah, definitely. Um, blockchain is a good place to not, not publish directly, but you publish hashes, or even hashes of hashes. 
Um, so you're, you're not filling up the blockchain, which is an extremely expensive resource with the data itself. You're, you're putting basically you're creating unforgeable databases that use the blockchain to create that unforgeability. I'm glad you said that, Nick, because I was thinking privacy concerns, flashing red lights, you know, obviously with any kind of data, don't want the government oh. to be just spreading it all over the internet. <laughs> oh, the vast majority of this data is already public domain and accessible by anyone already on the internet, but um, good point, Stephanie. And certainly I think hashes, but um, one of the interesting projects in that space is Factum. What's your thought on that? I'm not strongly familiar with Factum. I think... You can do with Factum what you can do. Certainly, you can do with that on Ethereum, and probably most of it on Bitcoin as well. So I don't know if there's a need for another blockchain just to do that. Given that, certainly that that kind of application is uh, going to be important. I think. So this brings us uh, back to another interesting topic that is tied, or maybe tied, to smart contracts, and that's identity. Do you think identity is a building block that's required for smart contracts? And by that, probably the immediate implication would be that you would need to tie that identity to specific human beings and verify it, which creates all kinds of concerns about privacy. Or do you think you can do smart contracts completely anonymously or leave a lot of room for privacy and anonymity? So the answer is it's not always required. Certainly legal identity is not required for a self-enforcing smart contract. If you're going to have a traditional legal relationship, alongside the smart contract to, you know, fill in the gaps or do things that the smart contract can't do right now, then you're going to need that. But anonymity is vastly cheaper than identity. The smart contract is, is, is orders of magnitude cheaper to run and enforce and so on than, for example, trying to do a lawsuit across the border. Like for an individual to sue another individual across a national border is usually a prohibitively costly thing to do. Big corporations sue other big corporations with armies of lawyers on each side researching laws of the various jurisdictions. That, that's usually just way too expensive for individual-to-individual contracts. Now, one interesting source of identity, of reputational identity, not legal identity, are social networks. You can imagine you know, finding and discovering somebody on a social network, figuring out you want to do business, and then translating that into a smart contract. Again, you're going to want to make it so you're depending as little on that reputation as possible. The reputation is the weak link there. The legal identity is the even weaker link in that case. And you're going to want to depend as much as possible on the smart contract for enforcing your relationship. So it's, it's going to become an art form to, to figure out. If you're going to say, I'm going to take this, this legal contract and just do it on the blockchain, that's not going to work very well. It's sort of an art form to figure out which parts you can do really well and which parts you can't and how to structure your relationship so you're only depending on the stuff that the smart contract can enforce. And in that scenario you see it really opening the door for a lot more low-cost anonymous and cross-border contractual relationships that can be resolved by smart contracts. So if anything the ability to to be anonymous and to transact increases with smart contracts the way you see Suggested. Yeah. So, so for example, you know, somebody from Albania meets somebody from Zimbabwe on a social network, and now they can do, you know, some kinds of financial business with smart contracts. And the and the stuff they can do, they can do orders of magnitude. Your financial assets can go zipping from Albania to Zimbabwe to Russia to China, you know, all around the globe. 
in a very seamless and low-cost manner as long as you're staying within the self-enforcing smart contract collateral system. Now, all of a sudden, you try to go outside that and <laughs> try to bring a, a traditional legal relationship into this. Now, you can imagine having done all that jurisdictionally complex stuff, your legal costs are going to be totally prohibitive so, of trying to go outside the smart contract system. There's a debate raging in the Bitcoin community right now. I think it's uh, a bit overdramatic, but um, this debate is between small blocks and large blocks and the future of capacity on the blockchain, but also in a different way, it's about governance and, and how the Bitcoin project is governed and, and who gets to make the decisions. What do you think of all this uh, debate? And firstly, the, the block size issue itself, and then the secondary debate of governance and, and hard forks in Bitcoin XT. Okay, so, so one wants to step back in this debate and say, what is the key thing that distinguishes Bitcoin from, say, Visa or PayPal? Because if there's nothing important that distinguishes Visa from PayPal, why are you even in the Bitcoin community, right? Go use Visa and PayPal. They're fine for what you want to do. Um, so the key thing that distinguish Bitcoin are independence from existing institutions. Visa and PayPal are very tied into the rest of the banking system. And its ability to operate seamlessly across borders. Now, they're, those are very closely related. And what they both have in common is they're based on the security. They're based on the high security and reliability of the Nakamoto consensus operating properly. Basically, what distinguishes Bitcoin from Visa and PayPal and all the others is that automated security that replaces the army of accountants and auditors and lawyers with computers. And without the automated security, you don't have that. With the accountants and the auditors and lawyers, they're all using local practices, you know, national practices. So that's why it's not seamless across borders. That's why that and other kinds of politics that ends up interfering is why, for example, when there was growing distrust between the United States and Russia over some recent political developments in Ukraine, Visa and MasterCard had to put up hundreds of millions of dollars of more of collateral. And so you can actually look at the, the level of distrust in the hundreds of millions of dollars level. Bitcoin just cuts through that, like cutting through a Gordian knot, and says, no, our security is automated. Somebody in the United States can pay somebody in Russia and vice versa, and it has nothing to do with the politics that's happening between Russia and the U.S. That's basically the key distinguishing factor of Bitcoin. Um, if you didn't care about that feature, then you probably shouldn't be using Bitcoin. Unfortunately, there's, there's a lot of new money that came in to Bitcoin that doesn't have a good appreciation of this, and they made a lot of money in it, so they think it's really cool. But their view of the world is still the Visa and PayPal view of the world, where we really just want to optimize transactions per second. And we don't really think about security that much, you know, that, you know, if something goes wrong, you, ultimately you can just call the FBI. PayPal is doing that quite often early in its history and still does that from time to time. They, they call the FBI and that's their ultimate security protocol. And besides that, before you get that far, you have the accountants and the auditors, you know, keeping track of things. You don't need that with Bitcoin as long as it has a strong security. The trouble is, and block size is one example of this, there, there are several other examples, and block size is probably symbolic of this, where you have some parts of the community that don't understand the centrality of security to Bitcoin's story and value and how it distinguishes from other systems. 
And so they want to increase the transactions per second. They want to be more like Visa. The sort of adversarial thinking and the appreciation for the importance of security seems to be, I think, missing on that side of the debate. Unfortunately, on the other side, they often talk about decentralization like it's good in and of itself, and it's not. The reason decentralization is important for Bitcoin in particular is because of that Satoshi Nakamoto's variation on the Byzantine consensus protocol. It's that particular computer science um, that makes use of a particular kind of decentralization that's important for the security. And this is security that's important. It's not the uh, decentralization for decentralization's sake. Well, so what is the important part of decentralization? Is it decentralization of nodes? Is it decentralization of miners? What particular elements is the one that matters and that we should be talking about when we talk about decentralization of Bitcoin? Right. So when you get beyond the theory and, and go into how Bitcoin is practiced, unfortunately, it falls very short of true provable security consensus. So that means there's a very empirical nature to it. Frankly, a lot of sloppy stuff going on in, in space. Part of protocol node discovery is dependent on full nodes. Now, the main security is dependent on miners and hash rate. So that's your normal day-to-day security for the most part. But there's also some components of it that are dependent on full nodes. And for that, you want a diversity of full nodes. You want to have full nodes running in various jurisdictions, various cultures, so that they're independent of each other as possible. And you also want to have developers running full, you know, the Bitcoin experts, the core developers and other um, people with that level of expertise running full nodes. That's important. When Bitcoin is only trustworthy up to 51%, and when you have miners doing strange things like we've had happen before with some fork, you need the developers there to be able to look at the blockchain and analyze it and say, miners, you should be doing this or that in order to fix things. There's a whole bunch of practical reasons why you want high diversity of full nodes and fairly low cost for running full node. And there's a, there's a whole other issue about miners and centralization and if you increase the delays in the network as an increased block size would do then that tends to incentivize more centralization of mining. I think there's a lot of other important problems in this space besides block size or in addition to block size. I think block size has become kind of symbolic of this performance versus security larger debate. And in that debate, a lot of other things have come to the surface, primarily questions about governance of the project from the core developers and whether it can be effectively forked by some developers if they disagree with other developers and who gets to make the choice as to what Bitcoin is. Do, do you see that as a healthy part of the debate or is it uh, so, ter- so I don't terrifying? Think yeah. Well, doing a contentious hard fork is not healthy. It's, it's basically a 51% attack being you know, justified through argument. You know? So if we can gather the support of a bunch of, of Bitcoin startups, then we're going to do this they're semi-civilized in that they're trying to get you know, more than 51% support. But essentially, that's what they're, they're threatening. The, the Bitcoin XT people are threatening. And so I, I do not think that is, is constructive. Obviously, given the realities of, of Bitcoin security, that, that kind of threat is out there. But I don't think it's constructive to be using that as your means of persuasion. So I think there's a lot of problems with mining practices that haven't been aired. These tend to be covered up and there's a kind of security through obscurity culture, which to some extent you have to have, given this, some of the security is not based on strong cryptography, it's based on the 51%. Unfortunately, that means there's a lot of practices that go uncommented upon that should be commented upon. 
And so like uh, minor practices of what's called SPV mining. So there's two important parts of the security with them. Run. They do the validation, which is actually approving or disapproving of blocks and making sure they're valid and preventing double spends. And there is the mining, the, the hashing power. And unfortunately, miners are separating these. So they separate them through pools and for other things. And this is a practice that has sort of become more egregious and widespread to the point where they're running validation on Amazon EC instances, which is a backdoor way of recentralizing the security. And so there's a governance issue I haven't seen addressed about how do you educate miners and how do you get miners to, to do safe practices that I think is even more important than the block size debate at this point. Well, the recent uh, fork that was caused by SPV mining or unvalidated mining, let's call it, seemed to have a, a self-solving component to it because the miners who were, in fact, doing that ended up on the wrong side of a fork and lost quite a bit of uh, money in terms of unprocessed rewards or rewards that ended up in the wrong blockchain. On the other hand, over a much longer period of time, it may still be profitable to continue to do that, even if occasionally you find yourself on the wrong side of the chain and lose a lot of reward. Do you think this is dynamically addressed by the protocol or is it going to be a weakness for a while? So I think when people do the economic analysis, they're way too unfocused on a narrow issue that is incentives. Incentives are important, but there's other aspects to economics and human relationships that need a lot more attention. I think a lot of this is not so much incentives, but just the fact that the miners do not have the knowledge. There isn't a document out there, as far as I know, about best practices for running a Bitcoin mine that has been written by a Bitcoin expert. And there's just a, a strong lack of communications going on. And I think that's, that's more important than the incentive issue. So on that same uh, topic, there's a catastrophic scenario that sometimes gets talked about in this XT conversation where 75% of the network makes this switch. And so the you know, XT fork begins and starts to exist. But 25%, instead of switching over to it, just stay with Bitcoin Core. So at this point, we have two networks, which has some major downsides because they share ports and other things like that. Basically, I've heard this described as functionally the end of Bitcoin, and I don't really see it like that. So I wanted to get your thoughts on it. The incentives are going to be, you know, with all those downsides from having two networks, the, the incentives are going to be aligned pretty strongly to push the networks back together. So what do you think would happen in that circumstance? And what do you think would happen, frankly, to the network if they didn't come back together and we did wind up with two actual separate blockchains that, despite these incentives, have stayed apart? So I mean, this is going to depend on questions that are far more in the weeds than I typically dive. So somebody like Gregory Maxwell or, or Peter Todd is going to have a better answer to this than I will. So I'm just guessing to say 75% is a, is a, is a large enough number that that forces the rest of the network to comply. But if they don't, you know, if you have an ongoing, and this is essentially a civil war, it is technologically equivalent to a 51% attack, what Hearn and Andreessen are doing. And so you essentially have a civil war situation. It will certainly exercise all of Bitcoin's security <laughs> features. Let's put it that way, as, as any war would. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show comes courtesy of Stephanie, Nick, Andreas, and Adam. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.